0: we go to the Waterloo and City Line for part one of our two-part podcast on this place. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are so many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to www.patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And Now to this week's podcast. The Waterloo & City Line, colloquially known as The Drain, is the London Underground Shuttle Line that runs between Waterloo and Bank, with no stops in between. Its primary traffic consists of commuters from southwest London, Surrey, and Hampshire arriving at the Waterloo Main Line station and traveling forward to the City of London Financial District. And for this reason, the line, except for very limited circumstances, does not operate on Sundays or public holidays. It is one of the only two lines on the London Underground network to run completely underground, the other being the Victoria Line. Printed in turquoise on the London Underground tube map, it is by far the shortest line on the Underground network, being 2.37 kilometres, 1.47 miles long. With an end-to-end journey lasting just four minutes, in absolute terms it is the least-used tube line, carrying just over 15 million passengers annually. However, In terms of the average number of journeys per mile, it is the second most intensively used line behind the Victoria Line. The line was built by the Waterloo & City Railway Company and was opened in 1898, at the time Bank Station was named City. When it opened, it was the second electric Underground Railway in London, following the City and South London Railway, now part of the Northern Line. Its construction was supported by the London and South Western Railway, whose mainline trains ran into Waterloo. And for many years remained owned and operated by the LSWR and its successors as part of the National Railway Network, not as part of the London Underground Network it now resembles. Following a major refurbishment and replacement of rolling stock by Network Southeast in the early 1990s, operations were transferred to the London Underground in 1994. The London and South Western Railway reached Waterloo Bridge in 1848, serving routes from Southampton and Richmond. The name of the terminal station was later changed to Waterloo. The location was some distance short of the principal commercial area of the city of London and as regular business travel developed the inconvenience of the location became an issue. The LSWR had hoped to build a line eastward to near London Bridge but the slump following the railway mania and the high cost of building through the area led to abandonment of the idea. When the South Eastern Railway built its extension from London Bridge to Charing Cross, A connecting railway line to it from Waterloo was built, but friction and competitive hostility between the companies frustrated beneficial use of the connection and it fell into disuse at the end of 1867. A Waterloo Junction station, now called Waterloo East, was built on the Charing Cross Line and opened in January 1869, but though ticketing was refused and the onward connection remained frustratingly unsatisfactory, a Waterloo and Whitehall railway was proposed in 1864 to construct a tube railway from Great Scotland Yard to Waterloo. It was to use air pressure to propel the vehicles northward and exhaust air to draw them southwards using a pressure differential. The trains themselves would be the pistons, the company capital was to be £100,000 and it was suggested that there could be a branch to where the embankment station is now located. It's not clear how a junction would be managed in a pneumatic railway. But there were to be three vehicles, one loading at each terminal and one in motion in the tube, so they must have been intended to pass at the terminals. There were to be three classes of accommodation in the coaches. Work started on the 25th of October 1865, but less than a year later, it was obvious that the capital was grossly inadequate. Authority for extension of time and more capital was obtained, but by then fewer investors had had any confidence that their investment would gain a return. In 1868, a further extension was granted, But little further work was done and nearly all the money had gone. In 1881, an independent Waterloo & City Railway was promoted to build a surface line to Queen Street. The cost was formidable at £2.3 million and the proposal soon collapsed. In 1891, the Corporation of the City of London made a statistical survey which it published ancillary to the national census taken that year. 37,694 persons lived in the city but the daytime occupation was 310,384. In fact, on the 4th of May 1891, 1,186,094 entries to the city were made i.e. the number of people that entered more than once. Separate statistical information is that about 50,000 persons arrived at Waterloo daily, of whom about 12,000 proceeded to the city by some means. In November 1891, a bill was deposited to build an underground electric railway from Waterloo to the Mansion House in the city. The capital was to be £500,000. The proposal was supported by the LSWR, but was independent. Three other tube railways were proposed in the same parliamentary session, the traditional cut and cover method being seen as impractical, as was an elevated railway on the viaduct. Electric urban railways had been introduced in Germany in 1891 and in the United States of America and were in daily, widespread use, but the United Kingdom, only one example was in existence, the City and South London Railway. The progress of the bill through Parliament was slow, partly because of the novelty of considering tube railway schemes. There were several petitions from the authorities responsible for the public works in the city. The London County Council tried to insist that the tubes should be made large enough to carry ordinary trains, and that all trains arriving at Waterloo should continue through them to the city. This idea would have required a new subterranean terminal station at the Bank of at least equal size to Waterloo itself. Numerous petitions against the bill or requiring additional protections to be included in it were presented, but eventually, on the twenty-seventh of July 1893, the Waterloo & City Railway Act gained royal assent. Following royal assent, the company prepared for construction. The new company issued its prospectus in March 1894 and the subscription is closed on the 21st of April. 54,000 shares at £10 each were offered and there was a slight oversubscription. A dividend of 3% per annum payable out of capital was promised during the construction phase. The contract was awarded to John Molam & Co for the sum of £229,064, equivalent now to over £26 million. Molan began the work on the 18th of June, 1894 the first building staging in the river about 500 feet west of Blackfriars Bridge. piles were driven for a cofferdam and two vertical shafts of 16 feet internal diameter were constructed as headings for the tunnel drive. The average depth of the tunnels is about 45 feet, with its deepest points at the River Thames at 63 feet underground. Driving the running tunnel started in November 1894 using the gatehead system of shielding excavation, cast iron segment lining compressed air working, and compressed air grouting behind the tunnel lining. Twenty men worked in each heading. The excavated material was removed from the staging near Blackfriars Bridge. It was conveyed there from the shields by a narrow-gauge railway using electric locomotives supplied by the Siemens company. Two were in use and a third was on order at August 1895. The station works at Waterloo were constructed by Perry & Co. The station tracks run in separate but adjacent arches supporting the main line station, which run transversely to the main line track. The arch piers needed to be underpinned to about 8 feet lower than the original foundations. The route starts from a point halfway between Lower Marsh and Auburn Street. Leaving towards the northwest, the line turns in a 339 foot curve towards the northeast. The curve is constructed by cut and cover, and the twin tubes start immediately after it after Stamford Street turning north-north-east to pass under the River Thames, converging with Blackflyers Bridge on the north bank. The line turns east there under Queen Victoria Street to the station adjacent to the Mansion House, running for a part of the way under the District Line. The sharpest curves other than that of Waterloo are 603 feet radius. The tunnels are 12 feet internal diameter, except for the 603 foot curves, where they are 12 foot 9 inches. Each 20-inch-long section of the tunnel was formed with a cast-iron ring made from seven segments and a key piece at the top. Under the Thames, the top of the tube is 23 feet below the bed of the river. The total length of the line is 1 mile, 1,012 yards, 2,535 meters. The underground station at Waterloo was located within the existing transverse arches of the mainline station, with the arrival and departure platforms in separate arches and a staircase access. Siding accommodation and a reversing siding were provided beyond the platforms. After disembarkment of the passengers, an arriving train would continue forward to the reversing sidings, and then return to the departure platform. An additional lay-by siding was provided later. At the new city station there were two platforms and either could be used by an arriving train, reversing in the platform. The city station was not originally called Bank. The City London Railway (CLR), which became the central section of what is now the Central Line, obtained an Act of Parliament in 1891 varying their previously intended route to take them to the area of the present-day bank station. The act required them to construct a central station and booking office and public subways connecting the surrounding streets. The subways were to be regarded as public, although maintained by the CLR. Any other railway intending to have a station nearby was entitled to connect to the CLR station by subways. This referred to the Waterloo & City line and was designed to create a single station frontage in the congested street area. The CLR completed its construction after the Waterloo & City Railway but was obliged to finish its facilities necessary for the earlier opening of the Waterloo & City Railway. The City and South London Railway also operated from the station. The Waterloo & City Railway station was located some considerable distance from the area near street level And this later led to persistent complaints as it required passengers to climb a steep and lengthy gradient in order to reach the exit. As the line had no connection to any other line, nor any ground level station, it was necessary to provide a hoist to bring the passenger cars to the line and get them out for heavy maintenance. This was provided to the west of the Windsor site of Waterloo Main Line Station and was known as the Armstrong Lift, after the manufacturer, who was paid £3,560. It was operated by water power, at the time of construction hydraulic power was commonly used in urban areas, supplied by utilities companies to operate hoists and lifts. The lift was to be capable of lifting 27 tons. It was completed in April 1898. To this day, rolling stock exchanges require the use of road vehicles before the construction of the Waterloo International Terminal in 1990. The vehicles were hoisted individually into the Armstrong Lift outside of the north wall of the Waterloo mainline station. This procedure is now carried out using a road-mounted crane in a shaft adjacent to the depot, south of Waterloo mainline station on Spur Road. This is only necessary for major maintenance work that requires lifting of the car body, as the Waterloo depot is fully equipped for the routine maintenance work. The remaining stub of the siding tunnel that led to the Armstrong Lift can be still seen today on the left hand side of the train, shortly after leaving Waterloo for Bank. But the lift itself was buried, along with the entire Western sidings, in 1992 as part of the construction of Waterloo International Station. The Waterloo and City Railway opened to the public at 8 a.m. on Monday, the 8th of August, 1898, with the train leaving each terminal simultaneously. The fares were two pence, one class only. Payable at a turnstile, but returns and season tickets and add ons to surface tickets were available. From 1900, the turnstiles were removed and conductors travelled on the trains, carrying ticket machines. The daily average receipts in January 1899 were £86, and with steadily rising passenger usage and income, the company was able to pay a 3% dividend out of the income following the annual general meeting of February 1902. Sunday services were not considered at this period. And in 1906 it was stated that it would cost £20 each Sunday to run the trains and they would not get that back in receipts. Very soon after operation it was realized that the line was running to capacity at the business peaks and then referred to as the rush and very likely used for the remainder of the day. Accordingly, in spring of 1899 an order was placed for five new motor cars with single operation. So I hope you've enjoyed our part 1 look at Waterloo and City Line. Part 2 will be next week where we'll look at the trains and stations. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any other places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, www.londonvisited.co.uk or via our social media. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast and we'll see you next week for Part 2. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.